Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, get a Bible in front of you to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. And uh, uh, we've been in a six-month journey in the book of Genesis, and that journey comes to an end today. And so this is our last week in the book of Genesis. And let me just uh, make some statements about kind of the philosophy of this series is we took the book of Genesis at a pretty good clip. And, I, and that was intentional. I, I, I had a goal that I wanted to start after Labor Day, and I wanted to be done by Easter, and here's why. Uh, we could have spent 12 weeks in creation, and we could have spent 12 weeks with Noah, and we could have spent 25 weeks with Abraham, and, and, and we left a lot of meat on the bone every step of the way in this study. But sometimes it's good, and in, in our own Bible study, and even when, what we study together as a church family, uh, when we go at a pretty good clip, we're able to see the big picture story, the meta-narrative of what God is doing. And then, I've been making notes throughout Genesis, we're going to come back, Lord willing, year after year, and we're able to now go into a kind of a deep dive on each section within this book as God would lead us back to in the future. And so today is the last day, and you're like, how can this be the last day? We're in, we're in chapter 41, and there's 50 chapters in Genesis, 10 chapters survey on the close of Genesis. You think we can do it, huh? And guess what? That's just the first half of the sermon, okay? And in the second half, we're going to come back and we're going to zoom in on some, some, some really powerful, hope-filled things uh, for us today. And so uh, today is a bit of a, uh, of a survey over what I'm calling like the five final scenes of the book of Genesis. And, and if you're new today, if you've never been here, uh, please know uh, it is not our typical custom to try to cover 10 chapters of content in one Sunday. So come back next week. That'll feel a bit more normal uh, for us. But uh, I'm so excited for what the Lord has for us. We have been walking with Joseph, and we've been following his life through these peaks and these valleys, and we've really spent a lot of time in the valley seasons of Joseph's life because there were plenty of them. And last week, as Pastor DJ continued the series, we, we left with Joseph still in prison. A, a couple of Pharaoh's officials had had these dreams, and they woke up distressed, and they're like, what is going on? What do these dreams mean? And Joseph's like, hey, uh, interpretation of dreams belongs to the Lord. Share it with me, and if God would desire to uh, give me wisdom of what they mean, I'll tell you. And sure enough, they share, and sure enough, Joseph nails it. God gives him wisdom to say, this is what they mean, and here's what's going to happen and it's exactly as Joseph said. The cupbearer is restored to his place to serve Pharaoh. The baker is killed. And it's uh, uh, two years. Joseph says, hey, when you get back into Pharaoh's presence, uh, remember me. Tell about the injustice done to me. And a day goes by, two, day goes, two days go by, a week goes by, two weeks, a month, two months, a year. And Joseph is still in the pit. And we see Joseph in these pit, these valley seasons of life. But, but today, uh, today we come out of the valley. Today we watch God bring him out of that. Who's ready to see Joseph out of the valley? We watch as God intervenes. We see the providence of God and what he's doing in Joseph's life, but not just for Joseph's life, what he's doing for this family that's becoming a nation to preserve these people by his providence. And so uh, in, in part one today, I want to cover these five final scenes of the book of Genesis. Then in part two, I want to look at Joseph's deep, deep trust in the providence of God. 
and how he was able to kind of persevere through all that he walked through because of that deep trust. Hey, here's what I hope we walk out with. Here's kind of the big idea today. That deep trust in God's providence preserves a soft heart in life's pain. Deep trust in God's providence. And we'll talk about what we mean by God's providence. Preserves a soft heart in life's pain. So let me pray for us. And then let's jump right in. And uh, hey, lace up your Bible study tennis shoes, okay? I'm going to give us a few parts where I'm going to tell it, okay, take a deep breath because we're about ready to go again, all right? We're going to go at a pretty good clip here today. I got done after first service, and I walked down there, and Erica goes, deep breaths. I said, like, okay, got you. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into it. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for your word. Where would we be without the guidance that you've provided by the inspired word that you've given to us. And so, God, we need your help. We need uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. We need your spirit to drive it into our hearts so that we might see and we might worship and we might live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so let's go. Uh, these five final scenes of the book of Genesis. And uh, let me call this first of the five final scenes this, from pit to palace, from pit to to palace. Uh, pick it up with me in uh, Genesis 41, verse 25. Joseph has come out of the palace or out of the pit because Pharaoh has had a dream. And finally, the, the cupbearer goes, Oh, yeah, I know a guy. I know someone who can help us here. He's still in prison. I was supposed to tell you about him, but now I remember. And so, out of prison, Joseph is called. And he's going to interpret this dream that Pharaoh has had. Uh, Genesis 41, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. You get a kind of an idea of what Pharaoh's dream was about. There are these seven just plump, healthy cows, and they're swallowed up by these seven just frail, skinny cows. And then there's these seven beautiful ears of corn, and they're swallowed up by these seven not so beautiful. And, and, and you're getting an idea of the dream here in verse 27. Uh, the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And so straight out of prison, right into Pharaoh's presence, Joseph's like, here's what your dreams mean. Here's what's about to happen. And here's what you need to do. You need to find a wise and discerning man. Here's what that wise and discerning man needs to do. You need to set aside a fifth of everything that's harvested in the years of plenty. You need to set that aside for the years of famine. You need to, here's how you need to distribute this. And Pharaoh's like, hey, I know a guy. 
This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in a second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Azaphanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was how old? Joseph's 30 years old when this happens. 30, I mean, this is a promotion from prison to second in command, hey, I'm Pharaoh. Nothing's going to happen in this land without your hand involved in it. He's 30 years old when this happens. If you remember all the way back to when uh, his dad looked at him and said, hey, your brothers are out pasturing the flock. Go, ahead and go, out, go out and check on them. How old was Joseph then, if anyone remembers? He's 17 years old. It's been 13 years. I want us to feel that a bit. Where were you on this day 13 years ago? So I would have been a sophomore in college in the Martindale dorm. I would have been rolling out of bed right now, 1043, trying to make the 11 o'clock service at the church I went to. A lot of lives happened in 13 years. If you look back 13 years, I want you to feel that. 13 years since he's sold by his brothers. The years as a household servant, from prized son to household servant. The years of prison. And now, by the providence of God, he's elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. And sure enough, exactly like Joseph said it, the, the, the seven years of plenty come, the seven years of famine come. And look at how chapter 41 ends. It says, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, it wasn't just the Egyptians. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. All the people are flooding to Egypt. Egypt has food. Go there. And if all the earth's coming there, Guess who's coming with them? Joseph's big brothers. The second of the final five scenes, let's call it the brothers bow. The brothers bow. Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, I love this. Why do you look at one another? Hey, do something. Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. 
Now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold all the people to the land. And Joseph's brothers came and what'd they do? Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. You remember those dreams? Joseph, teenager, wiping the sleep out of his eyes. Guys, craziest dream last night. We're out, you know, with our sheaves of grain, and all of yours bowed down to mine. (laughs) Crazy. And they're like, we hate you. (laughs) And sure enough, just as the Lord had given wisdom, insight, and revelation to Joseph early, early on in his life, it's exactly as God said it would be. Here they are, on their faces before their younger brother. And they have no idea it's him. And he knows exactly that it's them. This, the second of the final five stages, it really plays out over a couple chapters. Genesis 42 to 44 are, are, can really be summarized as the brothers back and forth between the, Canaan, between the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt. And so they come down and they, they, they get grain, and, and Joseph, this whole time, it feels like kind of this cat and mouse game he's playing with them. He'll, like, put their money back in their sack, and then he'll send people after them and be like, why'd you steal money? And, and, and it's kind of really odd. It can be bizarre. Like, okay, what's, is Joseph, like, is he getting back at them? Is this payback? Is this some, like, kind of twisted mind game he's playing with them? And, and, and I really don't think it is. I really don't think as you study Genesis that the, the, the text is trying to give you any sort of hint that, that this is revenge or this is vengeance of Joseph or this is some mind game that he's playing with. Him. I really think what Joseph is doing, remember, these guys sold him. They wanted to kill him. I believe this is discernment on Joseph's part to try to understand are my brothers still the same guys they were the day they sold me off? And you see the development through these chapters, especially in the heart of Judah. And Judah was the one who had the whole idea to sell Joseph in the first place. And over the course of these chapters, you can see Joseph come to a place where he goes, I I sense I can reveal my identity to these guys. And that's exactly what he does. The third of the final five scenes, the big reveal and the big reunion. Flip over to chapter 45. And as you flip, take a deep breath if you need to, okay? Chapter 45. And so there's been this back and forth. The brothers have come a couple times. They still don't know this is Joseph. Finally, they're back in his presence, and look at what happens. Verse, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him uh, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. 
So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Why? We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. Because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Whoo, we're coming back to that. And so the brothers are back in his presence. And, 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 he, and he finally, he's like, I'm going to tell him. And he begins to weep. And it says he wept to the point that Pharaoh's household is hearing the weeping. This is weeping, weeping. And he says, I'm Joseph. Is dad alive? And I love what it says here. Uh, his brothers could not answer. They're like, oh, no. And then you see an unbelievable response on the part of Joseph. We'll be back to that. So he reveals the identity Plans are made to bring Israel's family down to the land of Egypt to be preserved through the famine. And I want you to see the reunion between Jacob and between Joseph. Uh, ch chapter 46, verse 28. They are on their way. Jacob sends Judah ahead to Joseph to say, hey, we're here. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. So don't, don't just like read that. And then he prepared his chariot and then he went to go. You got to feel this a bit. 17 years old. If any of you in the room have a 17-year-old or at one point have had a 17-year-old, it was 17 when dad and son last embraced. You have the 13 years of the valley. You have the elevation into second in command. You have at least another seven years of good and prosperous farming. We're at 20 plus years since dad and son have seen each other. And dad thinks he's dead. And so he's still coming to term with the news that his son's brought back. Hey, Joseph's alive, and he is like alive, alive. He's like a powerful dude. And this whole way down, like Jacob has to believe it, but there would still be part of you right after two decades plus that's like, I'm not going to believe it till I see him. And Judah shows up, and, jo and he's like, Joseph, we're here. And what is Joseph feeling as he's getting on this chariot? And what is Jacob feeling as he's waiting to actually lock eyes with Joseph? Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Any parent in the room would know exactly what that would have looked like. weeping. Probably the only thing that's keeping you upright is you leaning the full weight of each other on one another. The reunion. 
Israel and Joseph back together. And so you have the Israelites, this family of Israel, settling in the land of Goshen. And the next few chapters unpack a bit of how these Israelites are preserved through a famine. God's providence to preserve this line that he had promised back to Abraham, you're going to have descendants, you're going to grow to a family, you're going to become a nation, you're going to possess a promised land. And God in his goodness takes them out of this promised land area to come down to Egypt to preserve them for a time. And then one day this great leader named Moses is going to lead the people back up to that promised land. Within this, these couple chapters, you have the preserving of the tribes and you have the blessing of the tribes. Before Jacob passes away, basically all of chapter 49 is Jacob blessing these tribes, blessing his sons. And at the end of chapter 49, the very last verse, here's what we read. Chapter 49, verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The fifth and final scene of the book of Genesis is the death of Israel, the death of Jacob. And in the death of this patriarch, you're left with 12 tribes. And these tribes will grow and grow and grow and grow in Egypt. They will become oppressed and enslaved, enslaved. And one day God will raise up Moses to lead these tribes that have become massive back up into the promised land. Deep breath. I want to come back to something. Back to chapter 45. And as you turn back there, I really want you to think what would your initial response be to the person or to the people in your life who would have caused decades plus worth of pain like we saw what Joseph went through? What would that initial interaction look like? And so Joseph reveals his identity. So Joseph said to his brothers, 45 verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. The first thing that Joseph communicates to these brothers who betrayed him and who led him into the valleys that he walked through are words of comfort. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry. 
In my list of things, I would have said to people that probably wouldn't have made top 79. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry. How can he say that? Here's how he can say it. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for, what's it say? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but but God. Just being honest with you. If that's me and it's them, I would have been like you. 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 You, 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 you. And I'm the second most powerful man in Egypt. And you're going down. It's not what you see at all. No, 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 don't be distressed, don't be angry. Sure, sure, you sold me, but God was sending me. You think, well, maybe we just caught him at a good moment. No, no, he doubles down. No, 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 let me, God sent me. And then if we're like, yeah, he, he, sure, he, he, he surely can't mean what he's saying. Verse 8, so it wasn't you who sent me. God sent me. How? How does he do this? I believe it comes back to this statement I gave us at the beginning. Deep trust in God's providence preserves a soft heart in life's pain. Deep trust in God's providence. Now, what in the world is God's providence? What is the providence of God? Uh, Pastor John Piper, his latest book entitled Providence is about this thick. It's fantastic. And so I could talk to you about what I think providence is, or we could tap the shoulder of Pastor Piper, who just wrote a book that thick on it. I know which one I'd pick. Providence, very simply, is God's purposeful sovereignty. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty. So it's not just sovereignty. And let's worship over sovereignty for a minute. Our God is over all and in all. He is totally in control. He is never out of control. He never looks down and it's like, oh no, what do I do now? He's got it. Always and in all things, he is completely sovereign. Think about that for a second. Because I'm at our dinner table the other night, and we have four kids, they're five and under, and, and they're all talking at the same time, and my little sweet little princess is like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And Erica's like, hey, babe, can you just answer? I'm like, too many input. I can't even compute. I can't function. God's never like, too many inputs. I don't know what to do right now. You all figure it out. Never. He is sovereign. But when you talk about his providence, his sovereignty has purpose. There's a purpose to his sovereignty. It's not just, we're not just worshiping that God is in control. He is in control with a purpose. 
And what's the purpose of his sovereignty? That all of creation would shine the spotlight on his glory. What is his glory? And again, I'm just tapping Piper on this one. His glory is the beauty of the full panorama of his perfections. I've always sold glory way too short. I've always tried to define glory as if I'm defining one of the other attributes of God. So I've tried to come up with this like finite definition of what the glory of God is. But in this book, Piper is helping me understand, no, no, no. God's glory is the beauty of the full panorama of all of those things you're trying to define. And so stick with me now. His providence is his purposeful sovereignty And the purpose of this sovereignty is that we would all see this full panorama of his glory. The last time you've stood in awe of something, that is only this little, little, tiny bit of what it will be like to see the fullness of the glory of God. And how do we see the fullness of the glory of God? We see the fullness of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see it now with kind of these veils, and one day we'll be in his presence and we'll see the glory with all his fullness. You're like, okay, are you preaching another sermon now? No, no, no. It has everything to do with Joseph. The reason he can stand there in front of his brothers and say, we're good, is because he had a deep trust that God was providentially over all of these events. And when we believe that, that a God who is purposefully sovereign and good and loving is over all of these things, it preserves in us a soft heart no matter what we're walking through. It's why when we sing, I turn around while we were singing, great is your faithfulness to me. You want me to keep going? (laughs) We're worshiping over that. All of you are worshiping over that because you know in your heart of hearts, whether it's peak or valley, his faithfulness is the same. And Joseph understood that. Now you go, maybe we caught him on a good day. I mean, the emotion of the moment, right? Like, he's just back face to face. Like, certainly we caught him on a good day. There's got to be a day coming where, like, he, what he really went through seeps in, and he's like, okay, now's the time. His brothers thought so. Genesis 50. Genesis 50. We're landing the plane, okay? We're landing the plane, but you got to see this. His brothers thought so. Oh, there's certainly a day coming when Joseph's really going to get back at us. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Dear Joseph, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. What's Joseph do? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Guys, no, get up. Don't fear. For am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He comforts. He loves. He says, I will provide protection and provision for you. Don't fear. I'm not in the place of God. You intended an evil thing. God intended a better thing. And I'm trusting the providence of God over the evil you intended with the act. Soft heart, soft heart, soft heart, soft heart. How do we keep a soft heart through the hardness of life? It's deep trust in God's providence that preserves a soft heart in life's pain. Where does this need to sink in for you? Where are you bitter? You and I both know this. Too often hard times in life create a hard heart in us. Where have you let some just flat out hard things take root? And you're beginning to feel your heart encapsulated in the concrete of it. I have a prayer that I quietly pray often. It's not very deep. God, please don't let me become an angry old man. Please don't let me become a grumpy old man. Who's with me? God, please don't let me become a grumpy old woman. Well, I won't, but some of you could. <laughs> We know when we meet him, right? You walk away going, they've had a hard life. And you're saying that because you just sense some hardness in the heart. You know what I want for us? I want to know how we come to the finish line of this world. The scars of the hardness and the pain of life with our frame leathered and weathered, but with a soft heart that's intact. Because through all the hardness, through all the pain, we've been able to go, I have a sovereign God over and above this. And that sovereign God has a purpose in all of this. And his good and sovereign purpose is ultimately for his glory. And out of his goodness for me, part of his glory is his goodness and his love poured out to his saints. It preserves a soft heart through life's hardest things. Joseph's forgiveness here is the fruit of that soft heart. But it's easy to close the book of Genesis and be like, man, Joseph's awesome. And he is. But Genesis has been doing something from the very beginning. You get three chapters into the book and sin's already in the world. In the rest of this book, you begin to see these lowercase h heroes. 
And, and if we had no other context of this faith, if we were just reading the book of Genesis, we were just starting in the beginning of the Bible, we'd go, maybe, maybe Noah's the hero. And you get to the end of the Noah narrative, and you're like, he's not the hero. Maybe Abraham's the hero. And you come to the end of the Abraham narrative, and you're like, man, what a great man of God, but he's not the hero. He's not like the capital H hero. Maybe it's Jacob. Maybe it's Joseph. Surely it's Joseph. Look at Joseph. And we get to the end of the book of Genesis, and we're actually going to find that these people are going to descend into a place of slavery and need to be rescued again. Noah wasn't the hero. Abraham wasn't the hero. Jacob wasn't the hero. Joseph wasn't the hero. All of the book of Genesis, from the very beginning of God's inspired word, is pointing us to this capital H hero who will one day come down from heaven, enter into the brokenness of this earth, walk the perfect life, will then ascend to a cross, be mocked, beaten, and scorned, will die, will be laid in a tomb because God has said that the penalty for our sin is death. If we close the book of Genesis and we just say, what a great guy Joseph was, we miss the fact that Joseph's radical, lavish forgiveness is just pointing us to an even greater act of lavish forgiveness that the capital H hero will invite us into. And so it's fitting as we close this book and it's fitting on Palm Sunday that we would take some time to remember the sacrifice of the big H hero. Communion is a time that God's people are to regularly set aside to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus died for your sins and he died for mine. The Bible says that this is not a time where we just go through the ritual, religious motions of this action. Some of you in this room, this will be the 1,752nd time you've taken communion. And the Lord intends that every time we do it, we pull the throttle back on our heart to examine, to investigate, to confess, to worship. And in doing that, he's saying, don't, don't just take of this in an unworthy manner. And so with Joseph's forgiveness, pointing us to Jesus' forgiveness, just take a few moments and do those very things. Would you examine and would you confess and would you worship? And would you prepare your hearts for in a few moments us to take the elements together? Go ahead and take a few minutes right here.